invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke today. We're going to be looking at a few passages in Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 3 is our first this morning, so you could turn there. I do hope you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I um, encourage you to use one in the pew in front of you. And the um, hope there's a deacon in the foyer because there's somebody coming in late. Is there a deacon in the foyer? Actually, uh, Bruce, would you mind just… Run- oh, here we go. Go ahead. Thank you. All right. Yes, that's just a reminder. We do lock the doors here um, for our own safety uh, during our, our meetings. It's not just a, to help us get here early. But Luke chapter 5, or excuse me, Luke chapter 3, we're going to be looking at a few verses. As I said, there is a pew Bible in the, and you're welcome to keep that copy. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, you're certainly welcome to have a copy, and that's there for your use. All right, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for time together. We pray that You would make this time in Your Word profitable. Um, As the Scripture says, um, all Your words are profitable and are useful for our instruction, for our growth in godliness. And we also uh, request, Father, that the Holy Spirit would take the profitable words and plant them deep within our hearts. Pray that our hearts would be open, we'd be ready to receive, and that we would be ready to meditate on the things that are in this, these uh, Scriptures, and do a great work within us, we ask in Your name. Amen. I'm going to read Luke chapter 3, verse 3. We have introducing here um, John the Baptist ahead of the ministry of Jesus, and in John chapter 3, Verse 3, we read, And he, that is John, went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drop down to verse 15, where we read, And as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." And so, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to this to them all that he locked John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, if you noticed what John said, John said that 
when the Messiah would come, when Christ would come, He would baptize with the Spirit and fire. What is John getting at? And what is the pastor getting at, for that matter? We're observing the Lord's table this morning, right? I mean, we're going to think about a discussion about baptism. Do these things go together? Well, the answer to the question of whether or not baptism and communion go together actually has to do with the riddle that John proposed that Jesus was going to come baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. There is a connection between the baptism and also the communion and also the Holy Spirit. So, there's a few pieces here that we're going to pull together to help understand and also prepare our hearts for the observance of the table here this morning. Um, When I was in management in the automotive industry, one of the tools that we used to discover root problems was the five why analysis. It was a part of the Six Sigma process of incremental improvement. Um, That may seem really complex and kind of highfalutin, but it's really very easy. In fact, you could be a toddler and do this kind of analysis. All you have to do is ask why enough until you get satisfactory answer, why the problem exists. And so, what we're going to do here this morning is we're going to ask five whys to get to the bottom of why Jesus would be coming with the Spirit and fire, baptizing with it. And so, we're going to try to appreciate this question this morning, and I pray that it will be helpful for our spiritual health as well uh, this morning. Um, But let's think first of all, the first why question that I'd like us to think about is, why is baptism a thing? Why is it a thing? I mean, if you've been through the pages of Scripture before, you'll, you'll read through the Old Testament and you'll think to yourself, wait a second, I don't see baptism anywhere. And then all of a sudden this John guy comes around, he starts baptizing people, and people seem to know what it's about. I don't even know what this thing's about. Why is John baptizing? Maybe you're here this morning even thinking to yourself, yeah, what? I've seen people be baptized, but I don't even really know what it's about. Well, let's consider that question and consider the message that John was bringing because the response was part of the, uh, the public nature of a baptism was a response to the message that John was bringing In particular, John's message was that he was preaching a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the word baptism in the original language is baptizo. Can you say that with me this morning? Baptizo. See, there you go. You got a Greek word under your belt. Uh, You feel very much more intelligent here this morning, I'm sure. Um, So, what does it mean? Well, uh, don't you hate it when uh, words use the same meaning, same word in the definition? You know, it's like that's not really helpful. But the word baptizo or the word baptism comes from that Greek word. It was basically kind of Englishized. It was made into an English-sounding word, and it literally means to dip. It means to immerse in water. And the reason we have this word baptize in the English language today is because of the politics in the 16th century. 
To translate the word literally would have caused all kinds of anxiety in the population because they had all not been immersed in the waters. They had all been sprinkled as babies in England. And so instead of drawing attention to the literalness of the word, they instead made it into, they just left it as an English-sounding word. And so baptism, though, but what is it? Well, baptism was an act, though it's very simple, it was filled with meaning, particularly if you were a Jew in the first century. A convert to Judaism, a convert was expected to reenact three major symbols of entrance into relationship with the God of Israel. In fact, um, this was applicable to male and female except for the first symbol. The first symbol was that all men who were coming into relationship with the God of Israel had to undergo circumcision. Second symbol was there was a ceremonial washing, a cleansing, a purification that mimicked what occurred at Mount Sinai. All the people washed themselves, cleaned themselves up in order to receive the Ten Commandments as they came down from the mountain and the law of God. And so people began to baptize, immerse themselves to prepare themselves for the reception of God's commandments. The third symbol was a sacrifice to cover up for sins. This was done at the temple. It was all prescribed. But all three of these were intended to symbolize that you had been forgiven of your past sins as a Gentile, and now you are finding acceptance in the family of God as a Jew. So, that's the symbolism. This is what people would have been appreciating when John was saying, you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Here's the only thing. John came preaching to Jews who had already been circumcised, had no need to be baptized, and had already been sacrificing in the temple. So what John was doing was very provocative. He was challenging these Jews who had been born Jews to examine their hearts to see whether or not they were Jew in name only. We might call them today nominal. In other words, they were born, they had If there was a census questionnaire in their day, they would have checked the box that said, I'm Christian. Some of us may have done that here. And there are many in our community that check the box Christian because that's all that they, they're not Muslim, they check Christian. In other words, they're name only. And that's exactly what John was challenging his countrymen to examine their hearts and evaluate not whether they were just conforming to the outward rituals of religion without being religious inside their hearts. Now, John is very offensive, actually. In Luke chapter 3, look there with me at verse 8. And in verse 8, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. People are saying, look, what do we do? We, we, you know, we want to be baptized, but now what? What kind of sacrifice are we going to bring to the temple? We've already been sacrificing. 
And so he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It's pretty offensive. Jewish people are proud of their ethnic heritage, just as we are proud to be American. We, we enjoy the fact that we have a national symbolism. And what, what John is saying here is, just because you grew up a Jew doesn't mean that you have a relationship with God. And I could basically turn this around and say, just because you grew up in church doesn't mean that you're a Christian. God is able to raise up from the stones new children of God. In other words, the future of this church is not in the nursery. The future of the church is in those who receive them, receive Him as their personal Lord and Savior. John 1, 12 to 13 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were not born nor of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And that is the basis of relationship with the God of heaven. It doesn't hinge on your ethnicity. It doesn't hinge on your social or economic status. It only extends to us on the basis of the God of heaven in, the son of his, in, in his own son. So, why is baptism a thing? Well, you're really drilling this why thing down. But baptism was a statement of a person's willingness to be identified as a sinner who is now willing to do all that God would have them to do. See, baptism was a public statement of a willing heart to do all that God commands. Here's the problem. Baptism again, as a statement, is occurring within water. So, like animal sacrifices, water cannot guarantee that your heart is going to be changed. Only God can guarantee the outcome, actually, and baptism of more than water has got to be necessary for you to be truly brought into relationship with the God of heaven. In other words, you've got to be born again. A willing heart to do all that God's commands comes as a gift of the Holy Spirit to you. And so the baptism that the Messiah is going to bring is not just a baptism of water. He's going to bring reality. He's going to bring life. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit and fire. Now that's strange. Why this designation of fire? So, the second why question that we're going to look at here, why a twofold designation of the Spirit and fire? So, in verses 15 to 22, we, we've already read these verses, but that little piece that John says, this guy's going to come with Spirit and fire is in verse 15. And so, um, people were beginning to wonder whether or not John was this Messiah figure or not, and so he denies that he is the Christ. And so, he's informing them that someone superior to him is coming. And this twofold baptism is actually very 
critical to understanding Jesus' mission and why He's even coming in the first place. Christ's coming is going to bring a great, uh, a baptism which is greater than water is going to bring something that is eternal. In fact, the, if you consider what the Holy Spirit is, it is the very soul of who God is that's going to be given to all who come after Christ. Now, John is baptizing in the Jordan as an object lesson. Think of the history of the Jewish people. Think of the crossing of the Jordan River going into the promised land. The object lesson there is very significant. It's such a historical river for the Jewish people. Passed, they passed through as a whole nation hundreds of years before. And so, the Messiah Christ comes to the water, and He dips Himself into this water. To enter into the promised land… All the people had to pass through. Now we have the Messiah who is like a river. He is whom all will have to pass through to get into another kind of promised land. He is the one to which all will have to go through to get to God. And so for the Messiah's baptism, He is not just going to be dipping people in water. He's going to be presenting them into the Holy Spirit. And it is something that we all must pass. We all must pass through this river. Now, how do you come through this river? Well, the repentant must go through Christ's baptism. They must by faith receive Christ. But the unrepentant are going to go through another kind of river. Those who go through the baptism of the Holy Spirit are going to experience peace and life and hope. But those who refuse to come through Christ are going to have a different kind of river that they're going to go through, a river of fiery judgment. See, the Holy Spirit knows all of our hearts, and He knows the kind of response that we will have to Christ. And He will either give us the living hope, or He will give us the fire of destruction. Sometimes the word judgment in the Bible is described as a mighty flood. For example, in the story of Jonah, the prophet, the prophet Jonah, who was swallowed by the whale, described his going under the water as if he was going under a mighty flood of death, of alienation from God. This is what he said, I have been banished from your sight. He wrote a little poem when he was in the belly of the whale that was recorded later, I presume, when he came out of the whale. But he said, I have been banished from your sight, and he sunk beneath the waves of alienation from God. Now, Jonah's experience has been used in the New Testament to describe Jesus who went into the tomb and came up out of the tomb. Jonah went into oblivion and was rescued from it and given hope and given life again. 
And in the same way, Christ was baptized, if you will, and descended into the grave and into the very pit of hell, I believe, and then was resurrected out of hell and given life so that he might give it to others. And so, at the Jordan River, Jesus is reenacting everything that has transpired in the history of Israel. He's becoming a representative for any who by faith would accept his baptism, his movement through the grave and exit out of the grave for all who call upon his name. And so, Jesus is demonstrating a very willing heart to do all that God commands. You see this in verse 21 to verse 23 in chapter 3. Uh, Luke's describing the baptismal ceremony of Jesus. Does Jesus need to be baptized? Does He need to repent of any sin? No, He doesn't. In fact, He's identifying with all of humanity who needs to repent of sin. And He's becoming like us, and He's willing to be baptized into death and then resurrected into life. And so, He comes up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit descends upon Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice comes from heaven saying, you are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. And so, the Spirit ministry of Jesus takes off, if you will. And so we see in the following verses, in verse um, chapter 4, let's jump over to chapter 4, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, in verse 1 it says, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, we don't have time to read the whole temptation, but Jesus was brought into the desert. He overcomes this temptation with Satan. And then we we see in verse 14, drop to verse 14, it says, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went throughout all the surrounding country. And so, He began to do ministry in the power of the Spirit. Look at verse 16 and verse uh, through 17. It says, He came to Nazareth where He had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus is in the power of the Spirit doing ministry. He's setting people free from from illnesses. He's setting people free from demonic oppression. And He's doing this all in the power of the Spirit. But yet, He's going to be tested further whether or not He's willing to do all that God commands. Because there is a great work that He has to complete before He can baptize everyone who calls upon His name with the Holy Spirit. Let's turn to Luke chapter 22, and we're getting closer to the communion. 
Jesus is going to have to be swallowed up in death like Jonah. Jesus is going to have to be swallowed up underneath of the waves of the Jordan. He's going to have to be alienated from His heavenly Father so that He can pour out the Holy Spirit on all who call upon His name. And in Luke 22, verses 14 to 23, we see a description of the Last Supper. And Jesus has called His disciples close to Him. Now, if you read this account in the book of Matthew, you read it in the book of Mark, you're going to read a similar-sounding presentation. Now, in Matthew's account, he talks about Jesus pouring out His blood as a ransom for many. But Luke highlights something a little bit different about what Jesus says. It doesn't mean that they disagreed. It just means that He's recording a part of the conversation that was significant to His presentation. And Luke presents um, Jesus talking about His blood being poured out as a new covenant. Very significant. And let's read those verses. In verse 14, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table." For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. And so Christ talks about His broken body and His blood being poured out as creating the conditions which leads for Christ to be able to be the one who can pour out the Spirit. See, His baptism in the Spirit and fire leads to His ability to give the Spirit and fire to other people. And so, what kind of fire did Jesus experience? I mean, we can get the Holy Spirit side of it, I think, but the reality is is that the Spirit who descended upon Jesus at the river and empowered Him throughout His ministry was the one who empowered Him in the garden, the one who empowered Him on the cross and pulled Him out of the grave. I personally believe that Jesus descended to the very place that we know even now is being hell itself. And under the Old covenant, that baptismal ritual was a public statement of a willing heart to do all that God had commanded, and the purpose for Jesus entering into this world was a significant purpose. Jesus expressed His willingness to go even into the depths of hell 
to be able to provide the Holy Spirit for all who call upon His name. So, we baptize with water as a signal, as a picture. But here's the problem. Our human spirit might be willing, but the flesh is weak, to do all that God commands. Only God can guarantee the outcome of that expression. And if baptism is going to have any holding power, it has to be infused with the Holy Spirit. And the guarantee that God gives us on this side of the cross is the Holy Spirit dwelling within His people. The truth of the matter is, we can be baptized with the water multiple times. We could be, um, we could drink the juice. We can drink the or eat the bread multiple times. But the reality is, we have to be born again. We have to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within our hearts, bringing about the guarantee that we will one day see Christ in eternity. And Christ underwent the fire of God's wrath, and He was brought out of it again. He was baptized in fire. Christ drank the bitter, fiery cup for us so that we could drink the Holy Spirit from Him. So, what about on the other side of the cross? Turn with me to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, verses 1 through 5, we read this. We read these words. Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. We read this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So why does Jesus speak only of the Spirit? What happened to the fire? See, Jesus appearing after the resurrection to His disciples, He says, you go into, you stay in Jerusalem, don't leave, you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And I believe that the reason that Jesus does not speak of the fire at this time is because Christ had endured the fire for them so that they could escape from it. And this same promise is available to us today. 
Christ is coming to baptize with the fire. But He has already endured the fire so that you don't have to be baptized with that fire. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. This is the last why question. Why does Peter speak of both spirit and fire? Because Christ didn't speak of the fire. Look at Acts chapter 2 for a minute. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit has come. This is the… this is Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 21, we read this, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy." And so here, Peter is talking about a baptism of the Spirit. It's very joyful. It's very exciting, actually. But then he turns, and in verse 19 to 20, he talks about a baptism of fire that's coming. He says, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And so Peter here, he's describing the coming day when there will be that winnowing fork that John talked about. The Messiah would come with a winnowing fork and he would sweep off the threshing floor and sweep all the chaff into the fire and it would burn. This is actually the serious part and the deadly reality of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that unless you are baptized by the Holy Spirit, you will be baptized by the fire of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist describes the unescapable fire that is coming. You know, the teaching about hell has fallen on hard times. We don't really care to hear about it. We don't really care to even have a pastor talk about it on a Sunday morning. Why does he have to talk about this? It is a great mercy of God for me to talk about this. Because the reality is the only escape from the baptism of fire that's coming as judgment upon this world is a coming to faith in Jesus Christ. As I said, hell has fallen on hard times. John Bunyan, John Bunyan, almost 400 years ago, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress said this about hell. He said, heaven and salvation is not surely more promised to the godly then hell and damnation is threatened to and shall be executed upon the wicked. When once a man is damned, he may bid adieu to all pleasures, 
Oh, who knows the power of God's wrath? None but damned ones do. Sinners company are the devil and his angels tormented in everlasting fire with a curse. Hell would be a kind of paradise if it were not worse than the worst of this world. As different as grief is from joy, as torment from rest, as terror from peace, so different is the state of sinners from from that of the saints in the world to come. That's a lot to hear. Jonathan Edwards, a generation later, in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, says this, almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done, in what he is now doing, or what he intends to do. Everyone who lays out matters in his own mind, how he shall avoid the damnation and flatters himself that he contrives well for himself and that his schemes will not fail. That natural man that Edwards is speaking about is those who have not been baptized by the Holy Spirit. They're unconverted. They're unbelieving. The natural man is someone who has not been baptized by the Holy Spirit, and so he thinks that he's not in danger of that coming baptism. Now, Peter is talking about fire because he wants us to know that unless we are baptized by the Spirit, this is our eternal fate. Are we stopping our ears to the truth? Are we filling our minds and our hearts with fancies? Do we try to crowd out the realities of the world to come? The reality is that eternal separation from God is eternity in hell. Peter talked about a baptism of fire and also a baptism of the Spirit. I didn't read the last verse of what Peter said, but Peter said that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. It would be horrible to just stop here and think that there's no hope. There's hope because Christ was baptized in the fire of hell for us. We don't have to go there.
Peter in his epistle, 2 Peter, probably gives one of the most descriptive accounts of the coming judgment and fire that's coming. In verse 1 through 13, won't read all, I, maybe we should, we should read it. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, please. If I can give equal airtime to those who are dead, who are not inspired by the Holy Spirit, I should give equal airtime to Peter who was filled with the Holy Spirit and wrote these words. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about the flood. There was a flood. God kept His Word. And in verse 7, and by the same Word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to this promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Did you catch the little bit of hope in there? In verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, but He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, a baptism was a public statement of a willing heart to do all that God commands. But the truth is, we may be all willing, but we are not able apart from the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to baptize us, to dwell within us, and to save us. I say it so many different ways. But unless you are born again, you shall not enter into the kingdom of God. But the truth is, everyone who calls upon His name shall be saved. What does that mean? That means to... Call out from your heart. It means to 
earnestly ask that the Lord would save you from yourself. All the sin, all of your desire, you might want to do what God would want to do, and you know in your heart you can't possibly do it. God's not asking you to be perfect. He's asking you to admit that you're a sinner. And bend the knee and ask Christ to save you. That's what he's asking for. It's not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's an earnest desire to, to forgive you of your sin. Change your heart that only the Holy Spirit can do that. But here's a promise that we've not come across yet. And I close with this. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise that if you, from the heart, earnestly ask God to forgive you, you will be forgiven, and He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and He will give you eternal life. So, the big idea here, five wives. Why fire? Why spirit? Because Christ was baptized with fire so that all who call upon His name might be baptized with the Spirit instead. That is our hope because of Christ. It is our hope and reason for why we celebrate this broken body, this blood poured out for us. Christ endured the baptism of fire so that we wouldn't have to.